Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. It's been a while since we've done any Robert Barr stories. I do enjoy his stories very much, and we have two Robert Barr stories for you today. The first, The Man Who Is Not On The Passenger List, and Share and Share Alike. And now, The Man Who Is Not On The Passenger List. The well-sworn lie, franked to the world with all the circumstance of proof, cringes abashed and sneaks along the wall at the first sight of truth. How true. The Gibrontus of the Hot Cross Bun Line was at one time the best ship of that justly celebrated fleet. All steamships have, of course, their turn at the head of the fleet until a better boat is built, but the Gibrontus is even now a reasonably fast and popular boat. An accident happened on board the Gibraltar some years ago, which was of small importance to the general public, but of some moment to Richard Keeling, for it killed him. The poor man got only a line or two in the papers when the steamer arrived at New York, and then they spelled his name wrong. It had happened something like this. Keeling was wandering around very late at night, when he should have been in his bunk, and he stepped on a dark place that he thought was solid. As it happened, there was nothing between him and the bottom of the hold but space. They buried Keeling at sea, and the officers knew absolutely nothing about the matter when inquisitive passengers, hearing rumors, questioned them. This state of things very often exists both on sea and land, as far as officials are concerned. Mrs. Keeling, who had been left in England while her husband went to America to make his fortune, and tumbled down a hole instead, felt aggrieved at the company. The company said that Keeling had no business to be nosing around dark places on the deck at that time of night, and doubtless their contention was just. Mrs. Keeling, on the other hand, held that a steamer had no right to have such man-traps open at any time, night or day, without having them properly guarded, and in that she was also probably correct. The company was very sorry, of course, that the thing had occurred, but they refused to pay for Keeling unless compelled to do so by the law of the land, and there matters stood. No one can tell what the law of the land will do when it is put in motion, although many people thought that if Mrs. Keeling had brought a suit against the Hot Cross Bun Company— she would have wanted. But Mrs. Keeling was a poor woman, and you have to put a penny in the slot when you want the figures of justice to work. So the unfortunate creature signed something which the lawyer of the company had written out, and accepted the few pounds which Keeling had paid for room 18 on the Gibrontus. It would seem that this ought to have settled the matter, for the lawyer told Mrs. Keeling he thought the company acted very generously in refunding the passage money, but it didn't settle the matter. Within a year from that time, the company voluntarily paid Mrs. Keeling £2,100 for her husband. Now that the occurrence is called to your mind, you perhaps remember the editorial one of the leading London dailies had on the extraordinary circumstance, in which it was very ably shown that the old saying about corporations having no souls to be condemned or bodies to be kicked did not apply in these days of commercial honor and integrity. It was a very touching editorial, and it caused tears to be shed on the stock exchange, the members having had no idea before reading it, that they were so noble and generous. How then was it that the Hot Cross Bun Company did this commendable act when their lawyer took such pains to clear them of all legal liability? The purser of the Gibrontus, who is now old and superannuated, could probably tell you if he liked. When the negotiations with Mrs. Keeling had been brought to a satisfactory conclusion by the lawyer of the company, and when that gentleman was rubbing his hands over his easy victory— the good ship Gibrontus was steaming out of the Mersey on her way to New York. The stewards in the Grand Saloon were busy getting things in order for dinner, where a wan and gaunt passenger spoke to one of them. 
"'Where have you placed me at table?' he asked. "'What name, sir?' asked the steward. "'Keeling.' The steward looked along the main tables, up one side and down the other, reading the cards, but nowhere did he find the name he was in search of. Then he looked at the small tables, but also without success. "'How do you spell it, sir?' he asked the patient passenger. "'K-E-E-L-I-N-G. Thank you, sir.' Then he looked up and down the four rows of names on the passenger list that he held in his hand, but finally shook his head. "'I can't find your name on the passenger list,' he said. "'I'll speak to the purser, sir.' "'I wish you would,' replied the passenger in a listless way, as if he had not much interest in the matter. The passenger, whose name was not on the list, waited until the steward returned. "'Would you mind stepping into the purser's room for a moment, sir? I'll show you the way.' When the passenger was shown into the purser's room, that official said to him, in the urbane manner of pursers, "'Might I look at your ticket, sir?' The passenger pulled a long pocketbook from the inside of his coat, opened it, and handed the purser the document it contained. The purser scrutinized it sharply, and then referred to a list he had on the desk before him. "'This is very strange,' he said at last. "'I never knew such a thing to occur before, although, of course, it's always possible. The people on shore have in some unaccountable manner left your name out of my list. I'm sorry you have been put to any inconvenience, sir.' "'There has been no inconvenience so far.' "'said the passenger, and I trust there will be none. "'You find the ticket regular, I presume?' "'Quite so,' replied the purser. "'Then to the waiting steward, "'Give Mr. Keeling any place he prefers "'at the table which is not already taken. "'You have room 18, sir. "'That was what I bought at Liverpool. "'Well, I see you have the room to yourself, "'and I hope you'll find it comfortable. "'Have you ever crossed with us before, sir? "'I seem to recollect your face. "'I've never been in America.' "'Ah, I see so many faces, of course, "'that I sometimes fancy I know a man when I don't. "'Well, I hope you will have a pleasant voyage, sir. "'Thank you.' "'Number 18 was not a popular passenger. "'People seemed instinctively to shrink from him, "'although it must be admitted that he made no advances. "'All went well until the Gibraltar was about halfway over. "'One forenoon the chief officer entered the captain's room with a pale face, "'and, shutting the door after him, said, "'I'm very sorry to have to report it, sir.' "'that one of the passengers has fallen into the hold.' "'Good heavens!' cried the captain. "'Is he hurt?' "'He's killed, sir.' "'The captain stared aghast at his subordinate. "'How did it happen? "'I gave the strictest orders those places were on no account to be left unguarded. "'Although the company had held to Mrs. Keeling that the captain was not to blame, "'their talk with that gentleman was in an entirely different tone. "'Well, that's the strange part of it, sir. "'The hatch has not been opened this voyage, sir, and was securely bolted down.' "'Nonsense,' said the captain. "'Nobody will believe such a story. "'Someone has been careless. "'Ask the purser to come here, please.' "'When the purser saw the body, he recollected, "'and came as near fainting as a purser can. "'They dropped Keeling overboard in the night, "'and the whole affair was managed so quietly "'that nobody suspected anything, "'and, what is the most incredible thing in this story, "'the New York papers did not have a word about it. "'What the Liverpool office said about the matter nobody knows,' but it must have stirred up something like a breeze in that strictly business locality. It is likely they pooh-poohed the whole affair, for, strange to say, when the purser tried to corroborate the story with the dead man's ticket, the document was nowhere to be found. The Gibraltar started out on her next voyage from Liverpool with all her colors flying, but some of her officers had a vague feeling of unrest within them, which reminded them of the time they first sailed on the heaving seas. The purser was seated in his room, busy, 
as pursers always are at the beginning of a voyage, when there was a rap at the door. "'Come in!' shouted the important official, and there entered unto him a stranger who said, "'Are you the purser?' "'Yes, sir. What can I do for you?' "'I have room number eighteen. "'What?' cried the purser, with a gasp, almost jumping from his chair. Then he looked at the robust man before him, and sank back with a sigh of relief. It was not Keeling. "'I have room number eighteen, continued the passenger, and the arrangement I made with your people in Liverpool was that I was to have the room to myself. I do a great deal of shipping over your—' "'Yes, my dear sir,' said the purser, after having looked rapidly over his list. "'You have number eighteen to yourself.' "'So I told the man who was unpacking his luggage there, but he showed me his ticket, and it was issued before mine.' "'I can't quite understand why your people should—' "'What does the man look like?' said the purser. "'A thin, unhealthy, cadaverous man, "'who doesn't look as if he would last until the voyage ends. "'I don't want him for a roommate. "'If I have to have one, I think you ought—' I-, "'I will, sir. I'll make it all right. "'I suppose, if it should happen that a mistake has been made, "'and he has the prior claim to the room, "'you should not mind taking number twenty-four. "'It's a larger and better room.' "'That will suit me exactly.' "'so the purser locked his door and went down to number 18. "'Well?' he said to its occupant. "'Well?' answered Mr. Keeling, "'looking up at him with his cold and fishy eyes. "'You're here again, are you?' "'I'm here again, and I'll be here again, and again, and again, and again, and again. "'Now what the—' "'Then the purser hesitated a moment— "'and thought perhaps he'd better not swear "'with that icy, clammy gaze fixed upon him. "'What object have you in all this?' "'Object? "'The very simple one of making your company "'live up to its contract. "'From Liverpool to New York, my ticket reads. "'I paid for being landed in the United States, "'not for being dumped overboard in mid-ocean. "'Do you think you can take me over? "'You have had two tries at it, "'and you haven't succeeded yet. "'Yours is a big and powerful company, too.' "'If you know we can't do it, then why do you—' "'The purser hesitated. "'Pester you with my presence?' suggested Mr. Keeling. "'Because I want you to do justice. Two thousand pounds is the price, "'and I will raise it one hundred pounds every trip.' "'This time the New York papers got hold of the incident, "'but not of its peculiar features. "'They spoke of the extraordinary carelessness of the officers "'in allowing practically the same accident to occur twice on the same boat.' When the Gibraltars reached Liverpool, all the officers, from the captain down, sent in their resignations. Most of the sailors did not take the trouble to resign, but just left. The managing director was annoyed at the newspaper comments, but laughed at the rest of the story. He was invited to come over and interview Keeling for his own satisfaction, most of the officers promising to remain on the ship if he did so. He took room 18 himself. What happened I do not know, for the purser refused to sail again on the Gibraltars, and was given another ship. But this much is certain. When the managing director got back, the company generously paid Mrs. Keeling £2,100. We'll return with our second story right after these sponsor messages. And now, Share and Share Alike by Robert Barr. The quick must haste to vengeance taste, for time is on his head. But he can wait at the door of fate, though the stay be long and the hour be late. The dead. Melville Hardlock stood in the center of the room with his feet wide apart and his hands in his trouser pockets, 
a characteristic attitude of his. He gave a quick glance at the door, and saw with relief that the key was in the lock, and that the bolt prevented anybody coming in unexpectedly. Then he gazed once again at the body of his friend, which lay in a helpless attitude upon the floor. He looked at the body with a feeling of mild curiosity, and wondered what there was about the lines of the figure on the floor that so certainly betokened death rather than sleep, even though the face was turned away from him. He thought, perhaps, it might be the hand with its back to the floor and its palm towards the ceiling. There was a certain look of hopelessness about that. He resolved to investigate the subject sometime when he had leisure. Then his thoughts turned toward the subject of murder. It was so easy to kill, he felt no pride in having been able to accomplish that much. But it was not everybody who could escape the consequences of his crime. It required an acute brain to plan after events so that the shrewd detectives would be baffled. There was a complacent conceit about Melville Hardlock, which was as much a part of him as his intense selfishness, and this conceit led him to believe that the future path he had outlined for himself would not be followed by justice. With a sigh, Melville suddenly seemed to realize that while there was no necessity for undue haste, yet it was not wise to be too leisurely in some things, so he took his hands from his pockets and drew to the middle of the floor a large Saratoga trunk. He threw the heavy lid open, and in doing so showed that the trunk was empty. Picking up the body of his friend, which he was surprised to note was so heavy and troublesome to handle, he with some difficulty doubled it up so that it slipped into the trunk. He piled on top of it some old coats, vests, newspapers, and other miscellaneous articles until the space above the body was filled. Then he pressed down the lid and locked it, fastening the catches at each end. Two stout straps were now placed around the trunk and firmly buckled after he had drawn them as tight as possible. Finally he damped the gum side of a paper label, and when he had pasted it on the end of the trunk it showed the words, in red letters, S.S. Platonic, Cabin, Wanted. This done, Melville threw open the window to allow the fumes of chloroform to dissipate themselves in the outside air. He placed a closed, packed, and labeled portmanteau beside the trunk, and a valise beside that, again, which, with a couple of handbags, made up his luggage. Then he unlocked the door, threw back the bolt, and having turned the key again from the outside, strode down the thickly carpeted stairs of the hotel into the large pillared and marble-floored vestibule where the clerk's office was. Strolling up to the counter behind which stood the clerk of the hotel, he shoved his key access to that functionary, who placed it in the pigeonhole marked by the number of his room. "'Did my friend leave for the West last night, do you know?' "'Yes,' answered the clerk. He paid his bill and left. "'Haven't you seen him since?' "'No,' replied Hardlock. "'Well, he'll be disappointed about that, "'because he told me he expected to see you before he left "'and would call up to your room later. "'I suppose he didn't have time. "'By the way, he said you were going back to England tomorrow. "'Is that so?' "'Yes, I sail on the Platonic. "'I suppose I can have my luggage sent to the steamer from here "'without further trouble?' "'Oh, certainly,' answered the clerk. "'How many pieces are there? "'It will be fifty cents each.' "'Very well. "'Just put that down in my bill with the rest of the expenses, "'and let me have it tonight.' I will settle when I come in. Five pieces of luggage altogether. Very good. You'll have breakfast tomorrow, I suppose? Yes, the boat does not leave until nine o'clock. Very well. Better call you about seven, Mr. Hardlock. Will you have a carriage? No, I shall walk down to the boat. You will be sure, of course, to have my things there in time. Oh, no fear of that. They'll be on the steamer by half-past eight. Thank you. As Mr. Hardlock walked down to the boat next morning, he thought he had done rather a clever thing in sending his trunk in the ordinary way to the steamer. "'Most people,' he said to himself, 
would have made the mistake of being too careful about it. It goes along in the ordinary course of business. If anything should go wrong, it will seem incredible that a sane man would send such a package in an ordinary express wagon to be dumped about, as they do dump luggage about in New York. He stood by the gangway on the steamer watching the trunks, valises, and portmanteaus come on board. "'Stop!' he cried to the man. "'That is not to go down in the hold. I want it. Don't you see it's marked wanted?' "'It is very large, sir,' said the man. "'It will fill up a stateroom by itself.' "'I had the captain's room,' was the answer. So the man flung the trunk down on the deck with a crash that made even the cool Mr. Hardlock shudder. "'And did you say the captain's room, sir?' asked the steward, standing near. "'Yes.' "'Then I am your bedroom steward,' was the answer. "'I will see that the trunk is put in all right.' The first day out was rainy, but not rough. The second day was fair, and the sea smooth. The second night, Hardlock remained in the smoking room until the last man had left. Then, when the lights were extinguished, he went out on the upper deck, where his room was, and walked up and down smoking his cigar. There was another man also walking the deck, and the red glow of his cigar, dim and bright alternately, shone in the darkness like a glowworm. Hardlock wished that he would turn in, whoever he was. Finally, the man flung his cigar overboard and went down the stairway. Hardlock had now the dark deck to himself. He pushed open the door of his room and turned out the electric light. It was only a few steps from his door to the rail of the vessel high above the water. Dimly, on the bridge, he saw the shadowy figure of an officer walking back and forth. Hardlock looked over the side at the phosphorescent glitter of the water, which made the black ocean seem blacker still. The sharp ring of the bell betokening midnight made Melville start, as if a hand had touched him, and the quick beating of his heart took some moments to subside. "'I've been smoking too much today,' he said to himself. Then, looking quickly up and down the deck, he walked on tiptoe to his room, took the trunk by its stout leather handle, and pulled it over the ledge in the doorway. There were small wheels at the bottom of the trunk, but although they made the pulling of it easy, they seemed to creak with appalling loudness. He realized the fearful weight of the trunk as he lifted the end of it up on the rail. He balanced it there for a moment and glanced sharply around him, but there was nothing to alarm him. In spite of his natural coolness, he felt a strange, haunting dread of some undefinable disaster, a dread which had been completely absent from him at the time he committed the murder. He shoved off the trunk before he had quite intended to do so, and the next instant he nearly bit through his tongue to suppress a groan of agony. There passed half a dozen moments of supreme pain and fear before he realized what had happened. His wrist had caught in the strap handle of the trunk, and his shoulder was dislocated. His right arm was stretched taut and helpless, like a rope holding up the frightful and ever-increasing weight that hung between him and the sea. His breast was pressed against the rail, and his left hand gripped the iron stanchion to keep himself from going over. He felt that his feet were slipping, and he set his teeth and gripped the iron with a grasp that was itself like iron. He hoped the trunk would slip from his useless wrist, but it rested against the side of the vessel, and the longer it hung, the more it pressed the hard strap handle into his nervous flesh. He had realized from the first that he dared not cry for help, and his breath came hard through his clenched teeth as the weight grew heavier and heavier. Then, with his eyes strained by the fearful pressure, and perhaps dazzled by the glittering phosphorescence running so swiftly by the side of the steamer far below, he seemed to see from out the trunk something in the form and semblance of his dead friend quivering like summer heat below him. Sometimes it was the shimmering phosphorescence. Then again it was the wraith hovering over the trunk. Hardlock, in spite of his agony, 
wonder which it really was, but wondered no longer when it actually spoke to him. "'Old friend,' it said, "'you remember our compact when we left England. It was to be share and share alike, my boy, share and share alike. I've had my share. Come.' Then on the still night air came the belated cry for help, but it was after the foot had slipped, and the hand had been wrenched from the iron stanchion. Thanks for joining us for these two great Robert Barr stories. Barr was a good writer of suspense. We do appreciate reviews very much, and we have a few recent ones to share with you. The first one, five stars. I really enjoy this podcast. All of his thousand and one podcasts, they're great. He's a good storyteller with a pleasant voice. That one from Blue Bernie, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, very enjoyable, five stars. I just started listening, and I look forward to many days of walking my dog and enjoying the stories. Clear pronunciation, great selection of stories, great pace. That one from Maru Sote, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, lots of great stories, five stars. I find lots of stories here that I haven't read. New shows regularly. Thanks for all the hard work. That one from Over P. Hill, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, superb, five stars. Well narrated. If you're not versed in the classics, this is an enjoyable and easy way to fill the gaps in your education. And if you're like me, needing something to keep your ears busy while your hands work, you found the perfect podcast. That one from Megbear99, Apple Podcasts, South Africa. And this one, fantastic, five stars. A really cute classic story I don't think I've ever heard before. A good old-time story for the family. Something that reminds me of the stories that Grandma and Grandpa would tell us at bedtime. That one from Wolfie Wolf, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, King Solomon's Mind, five stars. What a fabulous story. The narrator is wonderful. I've listened to 1001 Ghost Stories and The Macabre, which I really love. Thank you for such great works. Claire Han Placentia, California. Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars, my favorite podcast. These stories are amazing and narrated beautifully. Thank you so much, John. This podcast is truly a gift. Down from Kraken Ninja, Apple Podcast, U.S. And bookmarked, happy face, five stars. Wonderful stories, perfect delivery. That one from Verana One, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all so very for taking the time to sit down and write us these reviews. They tell us where you're from and why you enjoy our shows. And I know they help new listeners find us. Thank you so much. I am humbly grateful to all of you. Stay tuned for next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And we'll have a brand new story for you at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Until then, everyone, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon.